Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you This is the Final Word Weekly Edition. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, the World Cup is over. Although it's not in the universe where we're operating. Right now I'm watching the World Cup presentation to the extent that I'm watching people come on stage and receive their medals. But it's the rehearsal, the evening before at Lords, where we're sitting uh, recording this edition of the show. We always uh, get to uh, witness these sorts of things, Jeff. We get to see the way they rehearse the presentations. And I'm not going to give anything away, although I wouldn't be giving anything away, would I? Because by the time this podcast comes out, you will know that it's not being held on the balcony of the pavilion. It's mm. being held much as it was in the 2017 Women's World Cup in front of the new Plum Warner stand, which is a, a beautiful stand that was built a couple of years ago to replace the old decrepit thing that was in the corner of the ground there. And they're using that almost, I don't know, how would you describe the roof? It's got sails on top, little mini little sails, little caps, uh, and a very modern seating style, which, which made for some beautiful photos. So that is where the World Cup presentation will have been that you've already seen Last night. By the time this comes out, it is confusing. <laughs> We're recording this on a Saturday. It will go out after the World Cup's done. Well, we don't need to talk about the World Cup final because we will already have done that. We haven't yet, but we will have by the time you hear this after the World Cup final. That would be on the Final Word Daily podcast, which we discussed that. But we thought it's important to do a wrap-up of the tournament that isn't too concerned about the final you know the final is one thing and who wins and and it matters and it's important but it's a different story but we thought before we get bogged down in that before that takes up all the attention we want to look at the tournament that was and think about the tournament that was with the clarity of of not knowing who won it yet yeah i think that as you say the final and what happens tomorrow will, will drive so much of the conversation and if it's a great final and let's hope it's been a great final um that will define Everything else has happened, won't it? We, 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 that's how we think of these major tournaments. If, if they stick the landing, then um, what's happened before it, how the sausage has been made along the way, tends to be forgotten. So we thought the best way of doing this would be to pull together some of our friends 
or the friends of the final word, uh, people we've worked with and dealt with and talked to across the course of the last seven weeks and get their impressions of some pretty basic questions, really. What are the high points? What are the low points? What could be done better? And so on with it with a couple of people. We went on a couple of nice tangents as well, which were enjoyable, as we always do on the final word. And we've ended up uh, grabbing 10 people, all told, including the managing director of the World Cup, Steve Elworthy, which was great. It was fantastic that we were able to spend about a quarter of an hour with him the night before the World Cup final when he's obviously going through all the nerves and tension of the day before, uh, something that's going to be a really big moment in his life. Mm. But a range of journalists and, and photographers and, and people from New Zealand and uh, people from England who are going to be playing off in this final tomorrow and, and others as well. I wonder what Steve Elworthy's doing today, as in the listeners today, not as in the recording today, <laughs> when, when it's, it's all over. Is yeah. he staring at a wall? I've been is thinking he, about that is Monday. Is he in the bath? Well, I hope that he's... I hope he's in the bath. Mm. I wonder whether he's that kind of guy, Steve Elworthy, or whether he will be, like you, yeah. working on Monday morning. He's been appointed to be the managing Oof. director of the 100, which yeah. <laughs> I describe in our interview as the hardest job in cricket, and it probably is. Yeah. Um, I know you're off to work on Monday as well, Jeff, to call the Australia A game, or I should call it the Australia 11 game at mm. Canterbury against the England Lions. They're not calling themselves Australia A um, in this in this part of the tour, which I okay. thought was quite interesting. But anyway, we'll talk about that next week on the show, I have no doubt. Yeah, so when this goes out, I, I might be I might be on a train to Canterbury. I might be I might be at Canterbury. I don't know. I'm, I've, we've got three days between the women's test starting on the Thursday and, and the World Cup final on the Sunday. And when when I was approached with, <laughs> with an offer to go and commentate <laughs> that game, I was like, yeah, look, I love doing commentary. Well, what day is it on? Please don't say Monday. It's on Monday. I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> Look, sometimes the universe tells you something yeah. and you just got to do it. I think the hardest thing for a freelancer, and Nacho Mano said this on our interview with her a couple of weeks ago on, on the feed, was that you've got to learn when to say no sometimes. And I have no interest in saying no because it's going to be fun, but it was still yeah, it was yeah. still just, I would have liked one day to collapse, that's all. No, no, no. Well, yeah, as I say, some, sometimes you've got to say no, but this probably wasn't the right time to say no in the, in the sense that it's hard to knock back radio work, whatever variety it is and wherever well, it is and wherever it is, and also that makes a lot of sense. a fair bit of the Ashes squads are going to come out of that match. I sure. think for both sides there'll be plenty of players in the Lions and well, more likely the Ireland test as well because basically all of uh, Jimmy Anderson's injured all of England's frontliners who are involved in the one day set up are likely to be rested for that Ireland test you would think I can't imagine them playing Wokes or Archer in the, uh, in some the of Irish them, Well they'll have to play some of them, like, they won't want to be in a situation where Ireland get them in serious trouble and they don't have the artillery to blast them out later in the test match if they have to bowl first here, sorry mm. rather if Ireland gets a bowl first here and it is a little seamy nibbly thing uh, mm. they'll want to be able to um, do plenty of damage there too but um, that, that, that's all stuff that we'll talk about in future episodes. Today, this is a, a presentation of sorts that we've cut together, that Jay Mueller indeed has cut together for us, uh, of the, some people who we thought might have an interesting perspective. And we hope you enjoy that and we'll be back afterwards for some old-fashioned nerd pledge. So much nerd pledge. We've got a lot to catch up on and can't wait. home and the neighbourhood that you grow up in helps shape the person that you become. I can actually contend that this is true because I'm still afraid of bees and um, really don't like the smell of plasticine. Right, so the theory then goes that buying your own home can make you feel different. I suppose it would, partly because you owe somebody a shitload of money. But, um, you, I mean, you've done this recently. Is that is that the case? Do you feel different? I, I do feel different, actually. It's it's a, I feel like a proper grown-up after all these years. It's only taken me 34 and a half years to feel like I'm a contributing member to society, and, and that I am. So, 
So, good o for me. <laughs> so, right. It's really important to AV Jennings that when you buy your land or home that you feel like you belong. They don't just divide land into blocks. They design residential communities so that you can connect with others. Things like walking tracks, cycling paths, playgrounds and open spaces. And that sounds pretty good to me. Well, it's particularly important so that in future years when they do some lunchtime profile on a cricketer about where they started out, they can say, from humble beginnings or on the open spaces of wherever it is. <laughs> He used to play with a tennis ball, and that's why he's so strong through the offside today. Even now, like a couple of years ago, I went to look. I went to seek out the laneway where Neil Harvey and his brothers grew up playing cricket, that cobblestone street in yep. Fitzroy. I can't remember what it was now, but I remember reading about it in Steve Kinane's book about backyard cricket and how it formed the, the careers of so many Australians that went on to play. And, uh, and and it still looks just as it did in the 1930s or whatever it was when Neil Harvey was growing up. So I can I can agree with that as well. Yeah, it probably does. But the yeah. point here is, like, the point here is, yeah, go on. Go to avjennings.com.au and discover some great places to live. Well, we're at Lords Day before the World Cup final, which New Zealand are playing in, so who better to talk to about his time at this tournament than Brian Waddle, the voice of New Zealand cricket. First of all, Lords Day before a massive final. How do you feel? Oh, confident. And uh, it's always nice to be here at the home of cricket. So uh, it's looking good. Hopefully the rain stays away. I don't think we're going to have any bad weather. Um, and good chance to uh, win our first World Cup. Were you tipping, Brian, when you arrived that you might be calling a final at the end of this seven weeks? I was hoping, but uh, I didn't necessarily believe that we would do it. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to World Cup and the knockout situation, anything's likely to happen. We're just seeing behind our shoulder here, Jeremy Coney walking past, who, of course, led New Zealand to victory in Australia so famously in the mid-'80s. If That's often talked of as, as the, the high watermark of New Zealand cricket. If tomorrow happens and you pull it off, does that outstrip that comfortably? Yeah, that would be the uh, biggest moment in New Zealand cricket. Yes, we've had some great wins at test match level, but at a uh, tournament on the world stage, the the winning of a World Cup would be the biggest thing to ever happen to New Zealand. Because we're recording this before the final, it's probably going to go out after the final, but we don't want to be distracted by the final. So if you take that out of the equation, what have you enjoyed most about the last few weeks? Just the... um, the quality of the cricket and being able to see the top players in the world playing together. That's what we thats what we come to cricket for. That's what we love about cricket, isn't it? That you can uh, see the very best players on show. And you find out that some of them are human as well, that some do fail. We all fail at times. And, and the players do as well. And, I, you know, it, to me it's, it's, it's a celebration of the game that we love and we see people, you know, we probably only see the likes of you and, and I at, at cricket games. And I, I see a lot of other journalists just at cricket games. And that's a celebration of our love for the game uh, and, and the passion for which we hold it. And that's what I've enjoyed about coming here. It'll probably be my last World Cup. I don't think I'll go to uh, the next World Cup, wherever it is. India, I think. India, yeah. Yeah. Normally at this point... Is, I would... is that the scoop? Have we got the, the waddle Yeah, I was going to say, n- n- normally I would say, well, what's your negative part of the tournament? That's a far bigger story. This is, this is you. If New Zealand do get over the line, this could be a very special day for you. It could be. It could well be my last, my last World Cup and the first win that New Zealand's ever <laughs> achieved. <laughs> We've got ESPN Crick Info's Melinda Farrell, someone who has full cricket knowledge. And what have you... Most enjoyed over the last few weeks. Seven weeks, maybe, is it? I can't even count anymore of World 
World Cup? No, actually, I think it started back in 1992, this World Cup. Um, Did it? Yeah, I think so. I can't right. remember a time before. So it's eerily similar to when Pakistan won in 92 because it's the same World Cup. Oh, my God, we're still there. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. It has been long. But, you know, it's, it's, I think it's been fun. I've had my doubts before it started about some of the stuff about certain teams not being here, about not being enough. And then, you know, obviously we had the disappointment with, with the rain. But what? Those things will happen when we make those criticisms and everything, but when it comes down to it, the whole thing's a lot of, huh, which is that walking past. Uh, the clackety-clack of uh, <laughs> spikes on underneath the press box here at yeah. Lawrence as we have this conversation and we've just had Mitchell Sutton and Colin the Grand Hall walk past. Yeah, I was yeah. about to say, it's like, it was like a, a panto when they get the coconut halves out to be the horses' hooves or something, but it's actually New Zealand's team. Well, the thing is, yesterday, because I was interviewing him and someone took a photo of, of the two of us and we're both laughing in this interview and it's actually the nicest photo anyone's ever taken oh. of me at work. But yeah, Mitch Sutton, Perfect, perfect example of what I've just witnessed in press conference. I said to him yesterday, everyone's going on about, oh, you know, World Cup final would be so good for England. What a great story. It's like, he said, yeah, it'd be a pretty good story if we won too, you know. <laughs> Did you enjoy the pro- I know, Mel, you, you love New Zealand cricket. We've been, we've toured there together, indeed. Oh. How do you respond when you hear questions like, oh, um, um, you, came, you came second in the World Cup last year. Um, what about, the, you're the underdogs tomorrow and so on. I was getting angry on Kane Williamson's behalf because Kane Williamson is obviously not able to get angry. We were trying to work out before the press conference if there was anything we could say to get him to say something nasty. But it was there's a bit of disrespect and it's almost like people think they should just be happy to be here. They're in back-to-back Cricket World Cup finals. Like, they they defeated a rampant India team by outsmarting them and outplaying them. They're one of the best sides in the damn world. Like, even even England, who are coming in here as favourites, keep referencing what New Zealand cricket has done for them. I think they deserve possibly more respect, more credit than many people give them. So many people were talking about, oh, we'd rather play New Zealand in the semis. There was all that talk when it was in the air. as, oh, yeah, that's definitely the easiest route to Lords. So... It's kind of... I mean, it's not like it wasn't true, though. It's not like it's not true. I don't... Well, obviously, it wasn't. It wasn't true because it wasn't the easiest route to the finals, Mm. was it? So, you know... You said you, you love the tournament. We, we have all had a great time while we've been over in the UK um, for the last how many years. Um, where could they improve at the next global tournament? We've, which is the right time to reflect on, on the positives and the negatives. Where, where, where do you see room for improvement? Well, you know that I'm going to say I think it should be expanded to include more teams. You know that. That's, like, obvious, right? Yeah. That's, that's ex- ex- accepted all across the board. Uh, look... Except by the actual board. By, except yeah. by the board. Every other board of, of sense would, would say that. Uh, look, I think one thing I would say, there's debate to be had about the format. And I'm, I don't necessarily agree that the, that the final thing should change either, but I think that could be a, a discussion to be had. Here's my big thing, honestly, and it's not actually an on-the-field thing. I am so sick of the pathetic, overwhelming waste that tournaments like this produce. The amount of plastic rubbish that people... People, you've got 25,000 people in a stand who have actual hands that can clap. So why you need to have inflatable mm. things to clap that yep. just get thrown on the floor afterwards? You know, that's the sort of stuff. Or serving that out things me. on polystyrene plates, which I was <gasps> flabbergasted to see is still happening. People can stick their finger in the air. They don't need a big foam hand to stick a finger in the air. That, that's something as I go around this tournament that I think 
we can do so much better as a game. Like, Some people have really small hands and they feel <laughs> inadequate and they feel the need to have a bigger prosthetic hand. Like Mike Wood. Yeah, <laughs> tiny hands. He has tiny hands, tiny but hands. longer fingernails at the moment, go. I believe. He's yeah. not going to cut them again after no. running Kang Williamson out. Another, and that kind of goes as well to the amount of drinks we see, the amount of plastic bottles and so forth, which seems to be an ongoing plague. We know we've got to commercialise these events and have commercial partnerships, but surely we can find a better way to dispense of drinks. So I think that every tournament like this, and it goes to not just World Cups, everything to do with cricket, there needs to be a little box when they're doing all of their box ticking of what has to be organised. One of them has to be what's the environmental impact of what this decision is, whether it's part of the event organisation, commercial activations, marketing, whatever it is. Let's just let's just be a bit smart about it, I think, and at least ask the question because cricket depends on the environment. Like, it, it, it's a huge thing, a huge factor in, in that. And I, nothing grinds my gears more than walking around and seeing plastic cups and bottles and inflatable things just strewn around the ground. Well said, Belfour. Thanks for joining the final word. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I'm sorry. I'm feeling really passionate about everything. New Zealand, plastic. Ah. Welcome, or should I say welcome back to the final word, a man we spoke to back in April at the launch of the Wizard Almanac, the editor of that famous tome, Lawrence Booth. G'day. Good day, which is not a word off for news. This is the end of the tournament. We're talking to you uh, before the final. Let's start with the, what you've identified as, as the positives. When, you, when you're writing up your editor's notes next year, what, what will you be pointing to in terms of organisationally, how this has gone well? I, mean, I think the, the game has never felt more alive than when the Asian teams have been playing. I think the staging a World Cup in England draws on all those various diasporas from around the world and it, it, it just seems very vibrant. You know, India, have, OK, they've hogged most of the tickets, but you go to any game with Bangladesh and Pakistan and the atmosphere is terrific. They don't need any alcohol, unlike some of the, the, the England uh, fans. <laughs> Um, so so the, the atmosphere has been absolutely brilliant and, um, yeah, can't fault it from that perspective. In terms of just personal things, you know, little any little moments on field, things that have stood out, things you've enjoyed, especially in the last seven weeks or whatever it is? Yeah, there's so so many moments, aren't there? I mean, it started so well on that first day with the Stokes catch, which kind of went, went viral. Um, it rained a bit and we thought, oh, no, this isn't going to work out. But actually, Sri Lanka's win over England at, at Headingley kind of saved the tournament. And though, you know... Th- as an English journalist, we were getting a bit down on England at that point. The reality was it brought so many other teams into the competition and made the last of two or three weeks really exciting. I mean, even the game here a couple, a few days back, Pakistan v Bangladesh, looked like it might have something on it until, you know, England beat New Zealand. So there have been so many little moments like that. I mean, one thing that springs to mind now is, is Trent Bolt's catch to dismiss Carlos Brathwaite at Old Trafford. Another couple of feet over the boundary and West Indies win that. Maybe New Zealand don't get into the last four. There were so many little clutch moments like that that could have changed the way, way things happened. So that result saved it. And since then, the tournament's gone from strength to strength. I have a recollection, maybe two or three weeks ago, you popped a tweet up asking people what their thoughts were about the tournament and how engaged people had been. And you received an incredible response. Is there a way of sort of synthesising um, the, 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 the way in which people feel as though they engage with this World Cup in England? Yeah, I mean, that was, I suppose that was aimed slightly at the fact that, that cricket in England is, is hidden behind a satellite paywall, at least it was until um, the final when the Sky have agreed to share the, the, the coverage with Channel 4. So that's what, what I was getting at, really, and uh, the response was, uh, was along those lines. I'd say between two-thirds and three-quarters of respondees felt that the tournament wasn't as visible as they would have liked. It was aimed, I think, at the, at the, the television situation. I think there's been more chat about the, the tournament since England have got the semi, certainly since they beat Australia on, on Thursday. And with people now waking up to the fact that they can watch England free to air in the final, I think there is more buzz around it. I mean, I, I hate to think what would have happened if England hadn't reached the semi-finals because it would have mm. sunk like a stone in this country. And that, you know, perhaps journalists from overseas don't quite 
grasp that when they come to England. They assume that there is a there is a, a, a latent affection for the sport in England. There is, but it also needs to be visible. And I think what's happening at the moment is great for the sport here. It seems like that's an obvious lesson going forward. That you know that something has to be done and has to shift there. It seems the same with the ten team World Cup, with that claustrophobic feeling of you know, not reaching out to the rest of the world. Is there anything else in terms of the the negatives or what needs to be done better as we move on? I think there are some degree of approaching grounds uh, from train stations and not quite being aware that there's a World Cup going on. I wanted more buzz when I emerged from Vauxhall mm. Tube to go to the Oval or walk from St John's Wood Station to come to Lords, or even at the, you know, the grounds in Manchester, Birmingham, etc. I, I wouldn't necessarily know known unless I'd seen Indian fans or Pakistani fans or Bangladeshi fans that there was a cricket World Cup going on, the first in England for 20 years and a chance to connect with the public here. So that would be one of my gripes about the tournament. England reaching the final does change the conversation in England, um, but but certainly moving forward, um, that that's something that can be thought about. Um, look, Sky have made a brave decision because if if and when Channel Four get bigger figures for for uh, the final than Sky do, you know that's going to open up a whole new debate, and the ECB are going to have to take that on board when they do the next round of, of broadcasting rights. And I, for me, that's a great thing because they're going to have to take it into account that English cricket will have to be more visible to its public than it has been in this tournament. People have said Shakib Al Hassan has had the best World Cup of 2019. I'd, I'd challenge that. I'd say Petitioner Hunter Raza has had the best World Cup of 2019. We're thrilled to have you back on the final work. G'day, Vish. Uh, what we wanted to ask you and get you pull, pull you in nice and close to us is what's been the high point of the World Cup for you? The high point of the World Cup, I think it might have been the semi-final against uh, against Australia. I feel like it ticked a few boxes. It got England to their first final in God knows how long and got a bit of a monkey off their back in terms of not just chasing but doing it in style and bowling well with a new ball and and beating Australia, which is a thing that a lot of people um, are starting, well, were starting to get accustomed to until you, know, you get a few ashes overseas, you get pounded 5-0 and then 4-0. But um, no, it, it was something that I thought... The whole country kind of got behind, and and obviously with the carrot at the end being not just the Lords final, but the chance to have the game on free to air TV. That was the caveat, wasn't it? It was almost like you know you've got to win for the for the whole game in this country, not just yourself. So um, so yeah, so that'd be mine. The semi, no pressure. Um, I would ask, what is the high point of Melbourne shopping centres for you? Would it be high point? Melbourne shopping centres. No, it's centers. a right it's a joke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was kind of the idea. I was like, no one will get this except for fifteen percent of our listeners who are in Melbourne. I like Country Road. That's an Australian thing, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Um, is that that's where they getting they, nods from the, from they, the third Australian? They named the song the after that, didn't they? Country Road, take me home to the place where I belong. Never mind. You've had a long World Cup, haven't I you? I have. I'm very tired. <laughs> um, in, in terms of like little particular moments, any moments of magic on the field, anything that's lodged in your grey matter is like this is what you'll remember when you think about this World Cup? Um, Malinga, actually. Uh, let's see to Malinga. I think there was, there was a sense coming into this World Cup that we're saying goodbye to quite a few people. And it's only actually when you watch them, you know, you can read it, you can, you can list them on a piece of paper. But when mm. you see them and you see how some have aged, and in the case of Faf, some haven't, you, uh, kind of, kind of really hits home what yeah. the kind of players you're saying bye to. And no one wears their age worse than Malinga. And the yet, ultimate dad bod performer. Yeah, exactly. But, but the kind of dad bod that, you know, your kids will turn around and be like, come on, sort yourself out. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> and he's playing professional sport, no, no less international sport. And it was just the way that he was able to, um, the way he was able to just pull out one last big performance against England, the way we got to see like Yorker again. Um, he's a very memeable man now, as I uh, 
as I've been exploiting over the last month or so. And it was kind of sad, actually, to to see the way that um, Sri Lanka performed as a whole. But then I suppose the benefit of having such a, I suppose, a farcical group stage where everyone plays everyone and it goes on forever is the fact that your World Cup is never over. So you do get those yeah. nine games, you know, to, to enjoy these players as they as they wind down. It's just like the most extended farewell tour. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Just to stick with the positive thing, we asked you, Forster, the photographer, his best photo of the tournament. I said you've had the best uh, six weeks out of anyone in this country at the moment. What's the best piece you've written? Because I tell you what, you've had a few of them go absolutely viral and rightly so. This is, uh, it feels like an episode of This Is Your Life. I'm probably enjoying this. Um, I think, I think it was actually, what my favourite piece to write, to work on, was a piece I wrote and just plugged today actually about the relationship within the England dressing room and how they're all kind of linked together. So, you know, just little things like quite a few of these players grew up together. They were playing alongside each other at the age of like 12, 13. Um, it's quite funny, Joss Butler used to idolise Liam Dawson which is crazy to think of now, but, but generally, yeah. So Liam Dawson was a year above him. They wow. would always play for West of England and Dawson would always get the step up to the next level. And wow. um, Butler would tell his parents on the way back from, uh, from games, oh, you know, I'm going to be like Liam. Um, and, you know, they're both in the World Cup now. Obviously, quite a few of these play- players played in the under-19s together. But then the personal element to it is really quite touching. Um, I know David Willey's not in the squad, but David Willey's son, his godfather, is Liam Plunkett. Um, I believe Just Butler, he's just had a kid and he asked Owen Morgan to be the godfather to his son as well um, they're all kind of at each other's weddings all their partners uh, hang out together which isn't a big deal but I think back in the day certainly former players I've spoken to where the um, you know partners weren't exactly welcoming to each other and now they just have a, a really kind of it seems just like a really friendly group and a group that hang out together independently of the players themselves which I think is something and yeah I think that's probably the one I enjoy the most because it just we always talk about how relatable we are, but then you get into these situations and you have these chats and you realise, God, they're just a group of mates clearly having an absolute whale of a time. Like, I was talking to George DeBell from Creek Info the other day about it before the semi-final and about how they needed, they needed to get to the final and they basically need to win it to do themselves justice because in this country we're, we're quite show and tell um, when it comes to our sport. We, you know, we talk about great teams, but the, the overriding factor is always... What did they win? Where are the medals? Where are their trophies? What's in their trophy cabinet? So maybe that's part of our football culture because we're so kind of everything's so black and white. But really, you know, we'd be living anecdotally if this team don't win tomorrow because we'd be talking about individual players and how good they were together, but with nothing really to show for it. And this will be the last World Cup for a lot of those players. Um, quite quite a lot, a lot of the squad won't play ODI cricket again because the next ODI, not just a four-year cycle, but the next ODI is in, in March or something in South Africa. Joke of the scheduling. Um, but that's a different podcast entirely, isn't it? But yeah, so I think basically it'd be nice to look back on this team as a team that won England's first 50-over World Cup because I, th- I think of all the England teams that I've been and all the England teams I've watched, I don't think I've come across a group of players who deserve success as much as they do. Jeremy Coney, former New Zealand skipper. We're sitting at Lords the day before New Zealand are playing in a World Cup final. People always say that your side that won in Australia was the proudest day ever for New Zealand cricket. Would tomorrow outstrip even that? Good question. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it would be up there, wouldn't it? Uh, Last time, of course, New Zealand did well at home and then went over and joined where you guys come from uh, and we didn't go so well. So I'm hoping that, you know, the six guys that were there can sort of let that experience permeate through the rest and, and they sort of keep calm. It's pretty hard to do that. It's easy for us to sit up here and say. 
Uh, this is the biggest game of their lives, probably. But, you know, maybe they can, they can just crack another one. Who knows? They might just drag another performance out of themselves. I asked Brian Waddle this as well, but when the BBC commissioned you to commentate on this tournament doing the New Zealand Games, obviously, did you anticipate that you would be I asked that he wasn't going to be required. (laughs) Yeah. Did you anticipate being busy on the final weekend? Not really, to be honest. Uh, And especially once we'd got through the earlier phases of the tournament and things didn't go so well. Uh, But... You know, I, I don't know whether it had anything to do with it, but I recall Brendan McCullum and Kane Williamson having quite a high-level meeting uh, on the Chesterle Street sort of outfield after the game there. Yeah, multi-storey car park. Or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, yeah, so whether there was anything he got from that, I don't know. Kane, Kane is a pretty kind of... Um, did you see the picture of him on the telly when they beat India? Very just, you know, impassive. <laughs> oh, well, we're in the final now. <laughs> and I, I wonder what I'll have tonight for dinner. You know, so it's very, very calm, man. So I, I don't think he would get too up, uptight about those sort of things. He'll be calm here again, but he'll, beneath he'll be bubbling for sure. As far as uh, the broader tournament is concerned, uh, when you look back at this into the future, what will be the moment that sticks out to you? Oh, hell, you'll have to remind me of it so far. You know, when you get nearer worrying about mortality, as I do, because uh, you're getting closer to it. <laughs> um, I, 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 I've liked the surface. I've liked the pictures. I know it sounds a weird thing. They've, they've apparently, the ICC have told us that oxymoronic thing, which is... Our independent <laughs> pitch inspector mm. has been looking at things. And uh, I, whatever they've done, I don't know what they've done, uh, but it's provided interesting for interesting games. And batsmen, if they've got a bit of craft, can survive and get through. We've had some sloggers get through. Uh, there's been something for everyone. And if you're bowler and if you are good enough, you get through as well and you take a few wickets. It's been a, it's been a tournament for fast bowlers, clearly, uh, and a little bit surprising everybody's went for the leg spinner in a way uh, because the lack of bounce seems to have undone them. Whether Adil Rashid will play a part in it tomorrow, who knows? But... Uh, there's been something for everyone if you've been good enough, I think. You know, the way that Williamson, certainly from a New Zealand's perspective, has batted for so long and got a few runs. Uh, there's been some openers have found it hard. There's been some who have scored lots. You know, your David Warner, the way that he started against England, you know. He was out there and doing what all the pundits said, be positive. You know, show some intent as if he's on a camping ground somewhere. Um, and, you know, and he was uh, and then suddenly undone. Uh, so this, it, it's been an interesting kind of World Cup. There's been lots of close games. New Zealand have actually got through probably three or four of them, haven't they? And, and have survived. And that's actually something I think they could actually hang on to a little bit. Because, you know, I, I know I'm not supposed to talk about tomorrow, but it is, it is engaging my mind. Um, <laughs> that, that, you know, if I'm so hopeful, and there are th- 
you know, literally I've had thousands of texts coming from New Zealand fans, you know, if this is a, a motorway, an arterial road out here, you know, as flat as the mall, you know, it'll be as interesting as watching Trooping the Colour. But if it's a 300, it'll be more like Agincourt. And you'll find that the, that the English will become the French army with the cavalry getting stuck <laughs> in the mud. And we'll find Sugarcane Williamson. Uh, he will be wandering around his troops like Henry V and his happy few will be there. And they will, they, that if there's any place I would like New Zealand to take England to, it would be that spot where they suddenly find 300 is a struggle. And I think then we've got a, a, a game that will be befitting of the final. So I don't... <laughs> so I don't know whether I've answered your question. It wasn't an important question anyway, and I found a better answer. We, the one question we've asked everyone else we should ask you as well is that as a tournament, um, where could have it been improved? Where, where are areas that you'd like in four years' time for them to be on, on a better footing than they were in the last six weeks? Gee, you can't control weather. I, do, I, I think most people feel that the format was okay. They don't like the net run rate, and I think that was, that was shown up a mm. little bit and exposed a wee bit. And there is a way you can use the, the, the DLS around it, and I know the numbers that you get from that. So that sounds to me a bit fairer, to be honest. Uh, and it was tough on Pakistan. So, but that's the way it was done, and everyone knew the kind of the rules beforehand. And so, so there's an improvement, I think, to be made there. There's been enough damn good games. And I'm so pleased it hasn't been a, a, a sort of 500 versus 430 kind of game because, as I said, I think on your thing, I, I, I would rather see 1-6, a game that's an important, like, like Kane Williamson got against Pakistan in that last over. I don't know how friendly it's been. I've spent a time in the crowd. I've enjoyed the crowds, uh, but particularly the Asian crowds. I've en- I went and sat as a fan, actually, in one game instead of doing this. And I really enjoyed sitting amongst the Bangladesh crowd. There was, you know, over there, there was the centurions with their shield and their helmets. And over here, there was the plastic, you know, hair- hairdo of, uh, of, say, Elvis singing into their plastic, you know, uh, microphones. These ones are real, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're real. Um, and uh, I, I thought all that was great and they were happy and, and very a great community spirit amongst them. And, and really, and there was no kind of we, they about it at all. Our team, their team. And there's some nasty feeling, again, menace between the two. It was we, we, thou, if anything else, you know. And that's a much better feeling, I think, amongst a cricket round a cricket game. So if we can get those sorts of things, damn it, I'll be there. Brass under Aysen, thanks for coming and having a chat with the final word. Second time this year we spoke to you at the Sydney Cricket Ground when India beat Australia in a test series for the first time. But we have you here today and we want to talk to you about the World Cup. You've had a great World Cup. You've been writing beautifully, commentating on the radio as well. What's been the, the high point for you? What's the thing you're going to look back on and remember mostly about 2019 World Cup? Not having to pack every day. Not having to pack like everybody else's because we've been in a motorhome and all the driving, all the driving, really. I mean, yeah, the cricket's been great. Yeah, the commentary has been great as well. I've had lots of fun with you, Colo. I think that's that's 
that's been my highlight actually. We yeah. got we got to talk about the motorhome though. I, I didn't introduce you correctly. You are really World Cup on wheels. You and Gav Joshi have done an unreal job. Jeff and I were blessed to um, travel part we of the country blessed. with you, and we loved being in your presence and in, in, in your in your camper van. But um, let's go to that first, shall we? What about the experience of driving around the country in a motorhome? Uh, that we didn't perhaps see. What about it behind the curtain? Um, it was is something that's worth noting for us now. Yeah, it's just given us a chance to see so much of England, which we wouldn't otherwise. We would just go from city to city, venue to venue, and you know, there's so much to England apart from just the big cities. And like we've been driven through towns like Worcester and Northampton, and up in the Lake District when you know there were cracks in the relationship, and we thought we need to rekindle the flame. <laughs> we took a little ferry up there on the Windermere. And uh, yeah, because English, England, it's just so much, there's just so much history here. Like, you know, in Australia, you go past a house and it says, oh, it was built in 1910. But then you come here, everything was built in the 10th or the 9th century mm. and it still exists. And uh, uh, that's been one of the, like, major parts of the motorhome. But also, I guess, um, just that confined space, you know, like uh, it, it gives you a chance to appreciate, uh, like, how lucky we are to be cricket journalists you know you're away from home for a long time away from family uh, we don't get to play but like you know we don't talk about it enough it's not easy always but you know just being in that motorhome just climbing up over the cockpit into my little bed there <laughs> uh yeah it just given me a chance to appreciate how wonderful an industry we are lucky to be part of ah it's very, it's very sweet. We're lucky to be around with you, Bharat. Uh, on the field, though, what what have you enjoyed? Are there any little moments you'll think about in 10, 20 years' time and think, man, I got to see that. That was cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been doing mostly Australia games. Uh, and it's just been how, like, you know, we hear so much about how Australia find ways of winning. But this World Cup, I've realized how they ensure the opposition find ways of losing against them. and uh, And it's been... Aaron Finch's captaincy, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I wasn't there for the Carlos Brathwaite game, my dear West Indies. Like, you know, it just tells you how it comes down to little margins, right? It comes down to that. That could have completely turned the World Cup around. Uh, but over and above everything, it's been like this throwback feel to one-day cricket. You know, back that, that World Cup semi-final, India, New Zealand. I think one of the best matches I've ever been to just because it had everything. It had... Like the ball was swinging, there were some runs scored, there was some drama, but over and about like, everything, like it just tells you why cricket is such a beautiful sport. I'm in such a romantic mood today. Yeah, you just. Uh, is there anything that can be improved? I mean, putting you've been to a lot of global tournaments over the journey in cricket journalism. What happened here that you think could be advanced before we return to India in 2023? I think it could be shorter. It's just gone on for an inordinate amount of time. I feel like it's a cricket World Cup. You need, like, you can st- definitely have two matches every day. I know the broadcasters won't like it, but uh, what it will do is, uh, I feel at some points, some of the teams haven't really got a chance to get into rhythm or mm. they've been forced to get out of rhythm. Australia is a great example. I mean, they were on a high and then they get that six-day break. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I think it's slightly unfair. Like South Africa had to play, what, three or four matches at the start but for me the the most ridiculous part of the scheduling has been giving Australia three day-night games mm. where like you know most of Australia is asleep and Australia and New Zealand was a day-night game and the game would have started at some 1am in New Zealand so the scheduling at times has been off Like, but I'm still a fan of the 
ten team, everybody plays everybody format. So format wise, I'm happy. I like the fact that there is there are qualifiers these days, uh, which gives like you know chances to teams like Afghanistan to qualify. Maybe we'll get a Nepal or a Papua New Guinea the next time, which is which is not bad. I feel, I feel. World like T Twenty cricket is a great opportunity to spread the game, but fifty over cricket you need everybody to play everybody. And well, we could fight with you for a long time on this podcast yeah, about that. That's right. why I came on this podcast. We we don't have time to fight with you about it, but uh, yeah, you've got away with it this time. Got Stu Forster here from uh, Getty, who is uh, one of the foremost photographers in the world. We thought we'd grab him to ask him uh, how he has seen this tournament through the, the barrel of his camera. Uh, it's been a fantastic tournament. I think the colour provided by the fans for me has been the main thing because we're not used to it over here. You normally just have your British crowds. Um, but, you know, going to Pakistan, Afghanistan and India games and it's just been, yeah, pumped up the 10 and it's been it's been fantastic from our point of view. It's been superb. And, and as I say, the tournaments I've done in the past in this country haven't been anything like it. So it's... You might be one of the few people who's been to more games of cricket in the last six weeks than Jeff and I. Are. <laughs> oh, right. So let's, let's 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 plug your best photo. What is the best shot you've taken in the last seven weeks? Oh crikey! Um, I was right. <laughs> I, well, I was dead jammy on the first game to get the Ben Stokes catch. Oh, yeah. I saw that amazing um, by fluke, and I and I thought that our friend Phil Brown would have had a better version. He had nothing, so I was well chuffed. Um, so from there, there's just been, uh, there's nothing that stood out, but there's been a lot of catches. For some reason, everybody in this tournament has talked about the catch pitches. Uh, Chris Works, um, uh, Trent Bolt. Um, where in the past, normally you're just looking at what happens in the wicket. We're now having to keep our eyes peeled because you're expecting somebody to take off at any minute. So it's been good. I, somebody asked me the other day, what's it like taking pitches? I said, it's a bit like batting because you're concentrating on every pitcher. You're not, you're not taking a picture of every shot but you're concentrating like a batsman waiting, looking at the trigger movement. So from there, then you, you've got to be aware and you've got to try and anticipate. But I mean, as I say, the, the catches and stuff, we're now, we're, instead of being fixed on the wicket, we're now making sure that we're mobile so that we can flick like a TV cameraman to see, you know, what's happening and see if we can get that amazing catch picture, which we haven't got yet. But <laughs> Stu Forster, hopefully you get it tomorrow in the, in the final tomorrow, at Lords. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, and I have no doubt that you'll be featuring uh, with your Ben Stokes catch at the Wisdom MCC Awards as per usual next April. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Thanks for joining the final word. Uh, it's just been a cracking tournament I've loved every minute and if England can polish it off tomorrow but if England don't win I think a lot of people New Zealand to come uh, and win it would be uh, my second choice and I've got money on them as well by the way before the tournament <laughs> well, we said today was about getting friends of the final word to have a chat with us about the World Cup and there are a few finer friends of the final word than Ali Martin he's on final word to boo the Guardian's scoop master Thanks for coming on. And what, what have you enjoyed most about the last seven weeks? <laughs> Oof, what have I enjoyed the most? Well, I, I've, I've enjoyed the, the, the cricket predominantly. Do you know what? Because I feel like it's a tournament where a lot of the sort of stuff on the periphery is frustrated at times, but I think the actual quality of the cricket has been pretty high. And actually, it's not been the big six fest that we thought it was going to be. I think we've seen some, you know, as much as it's been weather influenced, I think some of the low scoring games have actually produced some great cricket. And I think actually the standard of fielding, I think has been particularly good. I think Ben Stokes sort of set the benchmark very early with that catch against South Africa at the Oval. And since then, we've seen some some pretty iconic moments. I'm thinking probably Marty Guptill's flying catch at, um, 
where was he? He was a, he was, a, he was a, around the corner, wasn't he? Yeah, around the corner. And then uh, a couple of lovely direct hits. Probably Gupsil again against India yeah. to run out Donny at the end. That was a pretty iconic moment. And then um, a, a big fan of Joss Butler nutmegging Steve Smith the other day in the semi-final <laughs> as well. So uh, I just I think it's probably I think just the cricket mainly. Um, yeah, that's that's what it's done. That's what's done it for me. I'm trying to decide if the scoop master is more like an '80s DJ name or an ice cream scooping machine <laughs> that's, that's gonna, like, <laughs> perfectly rolled spheres of ice cream into a bowl. Either way, it's you. We did, we did break plenty of yarns. I mean, that's probably from your perspective, Ali. The the, the most the, the biggest influence that you had on the tournament at the start of it was um, breaking the story about Alex Howes, and that's not at all saying that you're the reason Alex Howes is playing. The story would have got out one way or another, but you did write that yarn, and that has been influential at the point where England were struggling, and James Vince was in the side instead of Jason Roy. They didn't call up Alex Howes. No, and actually, I mean, as you say, during the sort of the time that Jason Roy was out of the team with that torn hamstring, I was feeling a little bit, <laughs> a little bit twitchy about the whole thing. Uh, as you say, the story was probably going to come out. I was probably just the one to do it, and it's, it's a, it was a sort of frustrating story in a time because I, I really like Alex. I think he's a terrific cricketer. I think he's he's been a key player in sort of England's transformation over the last four years. All right, he lost his way a little bit, and Roy and Best have sort of taken over and what have you, but. You know, it was very disappointing to see that he sort of become a very peripheral figure in the side after the Bristol incident, and then and we've sort of seen two players involved in that, and one has kind of redoubled his efforts, and uh, and it's and it wasn't Alex, unfortunately. So that's it was a bit of a source of disappointment that one, but um, you know, that's that's the way the job. But that is that is my job, and and to be honest, I, I take I do take sort of professional pride in having actually sort of delivered and executed the piece. Um, even if, on a personal level, I was, I was um, pretty pissed off with the guy for, for, for putting himself in that position in the first place. Well, you'd only interviewed him, what, three or four weeks before? You'd, you'd written this sort of really lovely piece up with Alex Hales about his post-Bristol experience and how he'd struggled. And then, as you, you also write the story, which, which essentially rules him out of the World Cup, it was quite an interesting rollercoaster you are on there. Yeah, that was pretty weird. I think it's the first time I've ever written the redemption before writing the downfall. But... Um, <laughs> It was also quite weird on a personal level because I, I was off for a month actually. I had a month sabbatical from work and um, that was the, the interview was the last piece I filed and then I actually broke away from my time off to, to write the story because I knew it wasn't going to hold. Um, so it made for a very sort of strange bookend to my month off and then ever since then it's just been World Cup mode and you know, you just sort of strap in and try and survive basically. It, it does happen though. I remember Nick Holt wrote a, a piece about how David Warner had become this nice, reformed, kind uh, gentleman on the field in, in about September 2017, I think, before the ashes began and um, and then there were all the other stories. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a quote that always knocks around. I think it's, it's Paul Newman of the Daily Mail who always says it. It's, what mugs they make of us. I mean, it's so true. It happens so often, doesn't it? And it's not just stuff like that off the field. It can, it can be on the field as well. We can pump the tyres up and talk about an incredible team then we can watch them you know struggle to for example England chase down that total at Headingley and you just think you know god they make us look such idiots I think the day before that Headingley game actually we were writing about the sort of biggest six hitters and who could break who could hit the ball the furthest and all that sort of thing and then you know, you just the next day you just feel like an absolute tool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not not getting too well. All the preseason, who's, who's going to make five hundred first, and mm. what, who's going to make five hundred and six innings? You know, come off it. In terms of uh, the other side of things, what hasn't worked? What's gone badly? What What do we need to address? Yeah, I've been. I mean, I mean, I've sort of been on the case of the kind of um, the sort of free to air and the whole visibility of the tournament. But I, th- I actually think free to air is only one small element of it, and um, and it's not necessarily. I'm not one of these. What, what frustrates me about the debate is it becomes extremely binary. It becomes, um, you know, it's, it's all or nothing. And, and everyone who is, is not against free-to-air but is sort of, you know, is happy with the status quo will try and paint you as someone that wants to see the entire sport 
you know, be run on a on a shoestring for for peanuts and but but be showed to more people. And that's not quite the truth. It's it's about a balance, isn't it? There are times when I've just thought, hang on, outside of crickets, outside of the pre-converted, you know, are we sort of cutting through here? So I mean, it's 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 a big. Uh, you talk about stories. I mean, obviously, I, I wrote the story a few weeks ago that Sky were thinking about mm. sharing the sharing the uh, the final on 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 free to air on a platform. I didn't at the time know how which way they'd go, and I'm pleased to see they've you know buddied up with a terrestrial partner in Channel Four and. Hopefully, it might only be a one-off game, um, but it will be there for everyone to see if they want to see it. In closing, I was going to ask you about free-to-air television. Do you think that uh, that decision taken for the final will potentially be the, the legacy of the tournament, that we will have a conversation in this country about terrestrial television and cricket, which is far more sophisticated than it has been in the past, and move away from that binary, will they, won't they, and get to a stage where we can um, get to a mature conclusion which grows the game whilst accepting the commercial realities? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And I hope it, I hope it does sort of... I mean, I sort of wonder when they, made, when they made the decision whether it kind of opens up Pandora's box and whether, the, you know, that's, it's a big decision for them to make, to, to, for Sky to make, to put it out there like that. But then, I mean, looking ahead, I mean, the, the, all the rights deals are sewn up for another five years and we've got the 100 coming, which will see a handful of games back on the BBC. What impact that has is, is yet to be seen. I mean, um, I don't know, I don't want to go on a big tangent about the 100, but it's, it, they, they're starting from a pretty low base. I, I sort of, I liked their Facebook page the other day, just out of curiosity, professional curiosity, thought I'd like it. And then on my feed, I see these regular adverts coming up for, you know, the 100 is coming click on the comments and it's just a stream of negativity and it, they've got so much work to do on that to really turn it around because you know cricket if you're going to spread the word of cricket you've got to get the people that already love it you know properly energized by what you've got in store for them uh, because they're going to tell their mates and they'll tell their mates etc so without that initial starting point it's it, it could be a struggle but we'll see we said to Steve Elworthy when we had him on that he might have the hardest job in cricket administration uh, of all time. Maybe. We'll see. I'm sure you'll hold him to account. Ali Martin, thanks so much for your support of The Final Word and joining us today. Thanks very much, guys. And I'm pleased to make my debut because this, is, this has been about a year and a half coming, hasn't We it? tried. Tell a story. We tried to do it in January 2018 and it wasn't to be because was, Jeff was in hospital. That's right. It was the Sydney test and poor old Jeff had just, I mean, over the course of that match had sort of disintegrated um, um, in terms of his well-being. Uh, and by the end, he wasn't even there. I was in the emergency ward at St Vincent's at the same time that they brought Joe Root in when he collapsed. So, you know, we, we were hospital buddies. Yeah, well, as John Etheridge of The Sun always says, he's never had a day off work so sorry Jeff you're slacking there well no I filed two pieces from hospital no, fair I wrote <laughs> I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote four of the five days of the test yeah. well, glad we were able to rectify it blindly cheers Ali cheers boys Steve Elworthy we're thrilled to have you on the final we're the managing director of Cricket World Cup 2019 this hasn't just been 45 days for you it's been six years how are you feeling on the cusp of the final yeah um Nervous, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic butterflies. I think it's a butterfly nervous. It's, you know, I, I, I liken it back to, uh, I suppose, back to playing days when you, when we were we were thinking back in '99 on the, the cusp of a semi final of a World Cup, and it's a similar sort of feeling actually. It's a, but it's a. There's more excite. I think there's more excitement here because you you you've you've been involved in the entire tournament, the build-up since 2014. Um, and we've seen how the tournament has progressed, you know, how it's, how it's built over the weeks, how the crickets um, come to light, how the stadiums have filled, it's, the fan zones have taken off. It's been brilliant. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good feeling sitting here the day before the final. A few of the administrators said before the tournament the one thing they were afraid of was rain. You had a couple of weeks rained out, but almost in the end the tournament was blessed that it's so long that you were able to get past that period and get back into some normal stuff through the, the last few weeks. 
Yeah, it is. It, I think, you know, the, the, if you if you sat back like we, I suppose you do now, and at the end of it, we go, right, it's it's 48 uh, matches in a day, and you, you know you've got six weeks in an English summer, um, and you've lost four games, I would have taken that at the beginning of the tournament. I would have, you know, you would have thought. Um, to get through an entire tournament over six weeks with nothing really affected, I think you, you probably, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, four games, you know, that affected seven teams out of the ten. Um, but at the same time, the format is that good that um, it still ensures that you've got enough cricket, uh, even with the odd upset here and there, to be able to to make sure your top four teams come through, which is fantastic. Was there a moment when rain was pervading the tournament, uh, when the zing bales weren't coming off, when people didn't seem to be really watching it on television, to be frank, that you were worried that this might be trending in one direction? Of course, it hasn't gone that way, but was there a fear for a couple of days there? No, you know, I think you think about that always as, a, as somebody who's looking after these, these huge big global tournaments. You worry about those things because that's, the, that's your nature. You've got to think about those, those scenarios. But you also then realise when you have a look at what's still coming down the down the pipeline of what matches are still to come how full those grounds are going to be um, the long range forecast was getting better all the time you know those are the sorts of things that just you you know you you keep an eye on I think you've always got a scenario plan for that's what that's what the event world is like you scenario plan for for worst case scenario um, but looking at it and you you just keep that positivity and we saw that we saw what saw what was coming um, and I actually think the groundsman did an incredible job in the beginning there making sure that you know we still had some really competitive cricket uh, decent contest between bat and ball and I think that eventually took 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 the, na- na- the narrative and the story I was trying to imagine sort of psychologically put myself in the position of someone being in charge of something as significant as, as this I can imagine there being almost a paralysis of, of nerves that something might go wrong but also there'd be these euphoric moments of euphoric relief when things go right when you have a great semi-final well two great semi-finals really in terms of, of what happened even though one was played over two days it just mm. made it more special in the end and, and th- those moments when you feel like I'm, I'm running this show and it's working and, and people are watching and it's happened. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, yeah. Those highs and lows are they they they're pretty punchy actually. <laughs> they are, you know, you you do see some of the stuff, and you see as uh, in the background at that level, as you say, being in charge of it all, you see you see absolutely everything, warts and all, because that's that's the nature of the job. Um, but as you know, the bottom of the the bottom when you see some of the stuff that happens and the challenges you've got to deal with, are completely outweighed by by the you talk about those euphoric moments and the excitement and you know. And I just think the, the one thing that really stood out for me was actually here um, was the Pakistan-Bangladesh game. Um, and I know the, gra- the crowds have been amazing. They really have. And some of the, the noise and the colour has been in, uh, just outstanding. But I was sitting in, in, the, in the LOC office, which is outside of the bowl, um, on the outside of the... And it, it was deafening in the office, you know, and I think that just shows it. And that was, that was a game where both teams were, were out of the competition, effectively. It was a, it was a group stage. But the, the support was just unbelievable. And you can just feel that energy and the electricity. And that's the sort of stuff that just pulls you through at the end of the day, as you say. But, yeah, it's been, it has been a real roller coaster, but it's been absolutely amazing. I've loved every minute of it. You said to me before the tournament the most important thing was – the cricket and that would take care of everything else. But you did have a very elaborate uh, plan for things off the field. You talked about fan zones, but also the amount of 
young people who would be touched by the World Cup in different ways over the course of the last six months, but specifically during this seven-week window. How's that gone? And what are the main, um, the main achievements that you can point to off the field which have been uh, able to be achieved on account of what's happened on the field? Yeah, there's, you know, there, there, there's so many of them. And I think you talk about the fan zones. I think the fan zones just pre this, pre this world now, the Trafalgar Square opening today, we've had over 230,000 people through the fan zones. Um, and there's, those are taster sessions of cricket the the little the little videos and the, the content we've seen about the the cues at those at the, either the batting or the bowling station of these little young kids wanting to have a go I think that's probably the real icing on the cake for me to see that and that's just in a fan zone we haven't spoken about the school's program or the club's program the cricket world cup clubs three and a half thousand of them that have opened their doors um, you know the number of kids that we said we wanted to get involved um, we're just touching on a hundred thousand under 16 who've experienced the World Cup and been able to come to a World Cup match. Um, and that's a really high percentage of the number of tickets that we've got available. But we made sure we wanted to know that. And I think there was a key to that. And I always, and I, this is so, you know, that picture of Anna Shrubsoul when she was standing looking over the picket fence when she was a kid um, and dreaming to want to play at Lords one day. And then in 2017, being the person who took those wickets at the end, that's that sort of inspiration and that piece where you think that's why we do this job because that's what you want kids to experience and you want them to say I want to be there one day and whether or not they get there to be able to play for their country um, and take the winning wicket that's not the point the point is is that they've been inspired by the game and whether they do that for their second or third team club side that to me is just as important but that to me is the special that's really the special key of this tournament for me. Steve without worrying about the final which will take care of itself looking back at the tournament as a whole what stands out to you as things that can be addressed or that can be done better as the tournament goes on into its next iteration and so on? Yeah, listen, I'll, I've probably got to reflect a little bit on that, actually. Um, but but uh, there, there, there could be a few things. I think there may be a few operational things that potentially we could have done slightly differently. But, you know, that stuff, when you plan four years out or three years out, you make a decision, um, you, you agree to do a specific thing with either certain partners or sponsors or, or, um, or, or stakeholders that you, that you employ to do stuff. Um, and then, you you know, as time goes on, you you, you you develop relationships with them and you sometimes think to yourself, well, four years ago that was the current trend and that was what was happening, right. but sort of four years later, it's it's slightly different and it's moved on. So you might be talking about tickets for example. Oh, tickets, yeah, ticket, tickets are one of them and I think four years ago or three years ago when we start doing that, you know, you think of the where the, where the technology is now and where it's going potentially um, and could you do something slightly differently now being on mobile or being, you know, being able to, so people could have a device on mobile and or tickets on mobile but then you know the, the venues are not necessarily set up for that yet so I think when you think of the iteration the where where the world is moving you know you really want um, the, these sorts of things to be built into mobile devices into your wallet into an app um, that can't be shared around on on whatsapp and people think that you've got the same ticket and those sorts of things so you know that that's going to come further down the line but I think technology will change all of that is it your assessment now looking back at it that it has been the, the best World Cup ever held is that and that's hard probably for you to assess as being <laughs> someone the, always the has boss to of say it. it at the end but it's they? true isn't it I mean Olympic Games gone by of course there was always would 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 the would the boss of the Olympic Games Juan Antonio Samaranch at the time stand up and say it was the greatest Olympics ever is it is that how you feel that you've discharged this tournament in such a way that that's how people will consider 2019 when they look back at it 
Yeah, you see, it's for somebody who's, as you say, is in charge of it, it's very difficult for me to say, sit here and say, yeah, I think it's the best World Cup ever. You know, I wait for other people to say that for me because, you've, you know, what we do is we just make sure that we deliver what we have to do. And, you know, the, I was asked a question at the beginning, it was probably about two or three weeks before the tournament. Um, how does it feel to be, you know, two weeks before the tournament, but you know it's going to be a massive success already? you can't answer that question because you don't know. Somebody else has got to answer that question for you. And for me, I think a really, one of the, and it was a really, it was a fantastic moment for us as the team. And I think, um, and it was actually Michael Gibson who did it when there was a press conference with Pakistan. Um, and in actual fact, it was um, Mickey Arthur, the first words out of his mouth were, I want to thank Steve Elworthy and his team for delivering the most incredible World Cup. Now for me, that's where it comes. We've looked after the players, we've looked after them. The cricket's been fantastic. They've really delivered some fantastic stuff. The grounds are full. What more can you do? You know, if you start comparing it to other tournaments, if you go back to to 15, you know, they sold nearly 500,000 more tickets than we did. So does that mean it was a better tournament or, or, or not as good? You, you, you can't really assess that um, because they're, the stadiums and what we've got in the UK, that's what we've got to deliver. Um, and we have, we've been, we're upwards of 95% in terms of ticket sales across the tournament. That's absolutely massive um, for the ECB and for the ICC. So yeah, let, let other people say that. I'm not going to say that, but I'm, listen, where I'm sitting right now, I'm, 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 proud as punch with where we are I'm really the team have done a fantastic job I'm wondering for you on a personal basis six years building up to this uh, the the crescendo of the last few weeks are you psychologically prepared for what happens come Monday when it's done you know it's it's over the, you, you could have a massive adrenal come down you could be wondering what's the point you know yeah. what do you do next and uh, all the rest of it are you ready for that uh I don't think I am actually because, you know, you think of the tournaments that we've had up until this point and we've run World 2020s and Champions Trophies and they're pretty short. Um, you know, there's 15 matches, 18 days. T20s are sort of three weeks long. They're not six weeks long. Um, so there's going to be some definitely some post-tournament blues, absolutely, because it is you're on, you just run on adrenaline now, you know, and the, the amount of sleep you get every night um, is, it was, is getting, was getting shorter and shorter and you're operating on four hours a night, five hours a night, that's it. Um, so there will be a come down but at the same time what's going to pick you up again are those highs and lows are is you see the success of it at the end and when somebody actually lifts that trophy here tomorrow is going to be absolutely outstanding for everybody who's been involved and for me that's going to be the one thing right okay i get that i can see that and that's what's going to pull us through very quick question in closing are you ready for the hundred you're going to be the boss of the hundred it might be the toughest job in the history of cricket administration <laughs> yeah i'm ready for it uh listen I've, I've i'm starting to get my head around it now i'm starting to work with the ecb and have a little look at it but i don't have that much capacity because of what's going on with the world cup and what we've got to do um but yeah it's a it's another tournament it's another challenge and i think the thing that i, I again and i go back to this if it's going to be something that is going to help drive new audiences and get people to play I'm in and I think that's probably the key for me Super worthy congratulations on the tournament you've put on and thanks so much for joining the final word brilliant no worries at all thanks for thanks for interviewing me Jeff, 1932 was the summer of Bodyline and the Australians needed courage to face Harold Larwood and we're still talking about it 80 <laughs> whatever years later we're not mad we're really not mad we've never been mad don't know what it's like to be mad no, don't have a chip on our shoulder on the bed at all. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, that same year, another young Australian showed courage by mortgaging his home during the Great Depression to start a property company, which must have been quite the ballsy move. 
Um, yeah, I mean, initially I was like, uh, meh, about that line, and then I thought, actually, that is kind of terrifying. Um, <laughs> probably worse than playing cricket. <laughs> Albert Victor Jennings was his name. He wanted to provide affordable and quality housing in areas where people actually wanted to live. AV Jennings, the company that bears his name, is still doing that today. It's very much a name of the times, isn't it? You wouldn't you wouldn't meet a lot of Albert Victors kicking around. Actually, you might. Maybe it, maybe it's like due for a hipster resurgence and... There'll I was going to say, I reckon there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of young boys out there, well, maybe young girls for that matter, called Albert Victor. Uh, I, I know an, I, I know a young Albie, uh, so maybe these names are coming back into fashion. AV Jennings are certainly in fashion, and that's why they're one of the most trusted names in Australian housing. Oh, what a segue. <laughs> He's so smooth. <laughs> Seamless. <laughs> He's like butter. <laughs> so go to avjennings.com.au. Go there now and check them out for yourself. I mean, if you need a house. Probably don't go there if you don't need a house. Like, if you're but sweet for you houses. Do. No, if you're sweet for houses you're probably good but but if you need one have a look this is final word adam collins and jeff lemon i hope we hope you enjoyed uh those reflections and uh and and that we were able to use that device as a bit of a marker for, for things that not only went well but but parts of this tournament that in four years time can be done better so that we continue to improve on it with each edition we just need more irish people more dutch people more maybe yeah. maybe some nepalese maybe some maybe some from hong kong yeah we, we want I, more teams i want it i want it i want to i want to see that afghanistan team play some other teams that that aren't you know, necessarily that far above them on the rankings. You know, you, you want to see those. You do, do get close, exciting games when you have teams who are evenly matched, and and you should have a tournament structure where they don't have to play all nine, but they can play some and they can be involved. Yeah, absolutely agree. It'll 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 mean the debate that we've had this week about first versus fourth, second versus third won't be relevant because if you set up a tournament with a in between stage, and I don't think it's quarterfinals. I think quarterfinals are junk because cricket's not big enough to accommodate quarterfinals, and it didn't work in '96, 2011, or 2015. But if we just have a middle stage, that will fix the fundamental problem. But anyway, that's that's an issue for administrators. And what I do hope, though, is that the next batch of administrators that, that sit on the ICC board remember it's a rotating thing. You're not you're not on the board for life. You're not a director for 20 years at ICC land. That the next generation of directors who and come after the big three who did who who have done so much damage to this tournament, but um, who, who have been involved in um, the way that cricket's been administered over the last decade or so. That the next group who come through will come to it with fresh eyes, and they'll do what they can to expand this tournament to at least where it was in two thousand and fifteen. Mm. And we can start having that conversation again, rather than being too bogged down on what's happened here and the arrangements they've made for twenty twenty three. I'm sure that with a a bit of uh, a, a bit of uh, Elastic thinking and, and, and some goodwill. Uh, I see no reason why we, we can't get back to a tournament which would be more inclusive. But that's that's a challenge for them. Fresh eyes. This sounds like something you'd be offered in a really awful restaurant. You know, some <laughs> sort of like Igor like, character. Oh, do you like a bucket of fresh eyes? Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to need. Grapes. I'm going to need fresh eyes here because we're about to do some nerd pledge. We're going to get some fast and fearless nerd pledge where Jeff, you're going to ping stuff at me, and I'm going to yep. do the best I can um, to stay up with you. We're going to do more nerd pledge quiz. We promised Andy Zaltzman's this week. It didn't quite come off due to the fact that um, he's extremely busy. And well, because we're extremely busy. India played a semi final. 
the two, two days. days. That's right. We That's were going to have him, weren't we? We were going to get him on the, the day between the semis and it didn't happen. But we will be talking to Andy soon enough and Andrew Sampson's also going to play ball with us as we work through the summer. But it's just Jeff and I today to go through your best of Nerd Good old-fashioned. And if I can do the intro, Nerd Pledge, the game where people send us numbers to confuse us on the Patreon page. The Patreon page is a thing where people throw a few coins into the final word tin to keep things going. It's at patreon.com slash the final word and they sign up with an amount that they want to subscribe to per episode or per month or whatever it is and instead of giving a round amount they give a more specific amount that has a cricket correlation that we have to deduce. One day I'll come up with a more catchy introduction that I'll actually write and memorise but (laughs) until now that's as good as it gets. Not everybody uh, goes into the more fancy numbers. Sometimes we get normal numbers as well and we love and appreciate those subscribers as well. One of them is Peter Langstaff. Peter Langstaff was actually one of Robin Hood's Merry Men originally. And someone who's been a huge supporter of the show on social media. Thank you so much, Peter. Love your work. Uh, We also had a pledge in from Ethan Morgan, which is the not very good nom de plume of Owen Morgan. Big fan of the show. Loves the show. Morgs. (laughs) Also uh, designed the light towers at Lord's. Did he? No mean feet. There you go. Ethan. The ones that go up and down. Yeah, the retractable light tail. He was inspired by a car aerial and, and took it from there. So well done, Ethan, for keeping things illuminated. Right, let's get into it. Let's. What, what we're going to do first is have a little look back uh, at, at one we got wrong and one I haven't figured out yet. Dan Crowley, a few weeks ago, sent us a number of 245 with the clue that it was not from this century nor from the last. And we thought we were very clever. We had Daniel Norcross on the show when we realised that that was the number of runs in the innings in which Charles Bannerman Mm. made his famous score that was 67 thereabouts percent of the team innings. And we were wrong. How could we be wrong? It was such a good answer. It was a it was perfect a, final yeah, word answer. But it, it was perfect final word and it, was, had a, and it met all the criteria that is it happened in the century before us and all yep. the rest of it. Anyway. anyway. But, but Dan corrects us and says this is actually a number from when the Aboriginal 11 toured England in 1868. 245 is the number of wickets that Unaramin, who was also known as Johnny Muller, uh, took on across that tour. He played 46 games. He's picked up his wickets an average of 10 and scored 1,698 runs, averaging a bit over 20, which was a very good number at the time. His crowning innings was 75 against a full-strength MCC at Lords right here. But his all-round efforts at Burton-on-Trent stand out where he's top scored with 42, took four for 59 from 38 overs, caught a fifth in the field and then finished the innings as the wicketkeeper, stumping four more and catching the last wicket. <laughs> when he came back to Australia, he played one game for Victoria against the touring England side captained by Lord Harris. But uh, obviously because it was pretty racist in 1868, if it's not still today, uh, he was didn't play any more games despite dominating in his local league where he played for Harrow and he's still a local legend down in that part of the world. There are a lot of things named after uh, Johnny Muller, a.k.a. Unaramin, uh, and the stories of, of that tour, the stories that I wrote up in the Wisdom Almanac last year, the, not the most recent one, but the one before, and uh, there's plenty of amazing stories that you can find too. Thanks so much, Dan Crowley. He did get in touch straight away after uh, we'd incorrectly... Uh, identified his number and directed us to that wonderful Twitter thread he put up with all those details. So a thoughtful nerd pledge uh, where we were able to, by him, um, do a bit of educative work. So that's what we're all about. The stories attached to the numbers are yeah. always the stories we like. That's why we love this game. Absolutely. And, um, and, and love the fact that it exists 
And I'd particularly like to thank Philip Ming, who was the first um, subscriber to put in a nerd pledge number before it was a game. He's the one who put in $2.22 and, and kicked it? off this entire yeah, process. Thank you, Philip. That's really good of you. Not only because a lot of people have got on board, but um, this has been fun. We love getting these in on the Patreon page and immediately the first thing that Jeff and I do is have a quick guess at what it might be before sometimes doing some research sometimes not but um, yeah the community feel of this part of our show has been one of the highlights in the last few months now edward bearfield smith which is a fantastic name that i particularly enjoy uh, now he's confused me he's put in a, a number of 536 and he said his initial intended nerd pledge was taken so he tried to find a way to honour the same effort slash game with a reference to his companion in the feet. We didn't get that. Then he sent a clue saying it was something to do with wicket-keeping and I still didn't get it. So, look, I've looked, I've dug, I don't know if anybody else has any ideas, but but you might have an idea. Well, hang on, what's the number again? 536. The best thing I've been able to quickly find might work, though, uh, which is that if it's a wicket-keeping stat, yeah, I think this works. If it's a wiki-keeping stat, Ian Healy once was responsible for an innings where 536 runs were made and no buyers were conceded. Huh. So that's not the most of all time. I think there have been a few 600, 700 type innings where right. that's been achieved. But 536, indeed, yeah, I'm looking 713 um, uh, it looks like it might be the most amount of runs. 715 even. Linton Das, who was in this World Cup... For uh, Bangladesh. A, 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 ...a part of the Bangladesh squad. He, he wicket-kept uh, in an innings where New Zealand made 715 and he didn't concede a buy. But well, I'm happy to go with that. Ian Healy, 536. It could be, although I, I don't know where the other... There's a companion involved and, and the uh, the wicket-keeper in the buy is a very solo pursuit. So yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if we're there, but I like it. I like the fact that you, found, you dug that up. So Edward Bearfield-Smith, we still haven't got it. If anyone else can work it out, <laughs> let us know. Tweet us or, or email finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Next, I'm pretty sure you're going to get this. I, I haven't given you any prelim on this, Adam, but I okay. reckon I reckon you're going to get it. Cold. This is the ones that I never ever get, by the <laughs> way. But oh, well, it's fine. Whatever. Let's do it. Six sixty, which I'm very confident is a set of bowling figures that would be six four sixty. Uh, uh, six for sixty. It involves your hometown. Six for sixty in Melbourne. Someone has taken six for sixty at the cricket ground. Someone who's taken it in a test match more than likely if it's going to be 60 runs conceded. Let's keep working through the facts. I am I am DSS Hastings. I am going to keep working through this. It's, it's a test match at the MCG. It's going to be an Ashes test match possibly i'm looking for verification it is an ashes test match okay six for 60 in an ashes test match at the melbourne cricket ground oh nathan lyon took six in 2013 i don't think it was for 60 runs though dennis Lilly, i reckon took six in an ashes test at the mcg but i don't think it was as many as 60 runs on that occasion uh give me one more clue it's 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 set up an unlikely win it set up an unlikely win. It set up an unlikely win at the G. Dean Headley took six wickets at the MCG, setting up a most unlikely win. Is it Dean Headley? 
It is. Oh, Dean Headley. How, I met him earlier this year. He's he's uh, what, what a nice man. I'm glad. Glad Dean Headley's in there, please. Great. The grandson of George Headley. Indeed. He's got the second best innings to uh, hundreds ratio of all time behind Bradman at 2.2. That's a test we've talked about before on the show. I can't remember what the context was, but that's the innings or test match rather where I sat at the back row of the Southern Stand and scored the whole thing. I would love to find my score sheets. That I also scored the final of the 99 World Cup, the whole thing, both innings up until 2.30 in the morning or whatever my parents let me do that. These sheets must exist somewhere and I would love to get my hands on them. Between the sheets with Adam Collins. <laughs> so thank you, Andrew Reid, for uh, that Dean Headley-related stat. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm going to assume that that's who it is, Dean Headley. Byron Cooper Fogarty has written in now. He's Hyfe. Hyfe. The hyphen. The hyphen. The hyphen. The yeah, hyphen. Yeah. Byron Cooper Fogarty. I love a name Byron. It's very good. Very Byronic. Mm. Isn't it Byronic? Don't you think? <laughs> a little too Byronic. <laughs> I just died in a war in Greece. Um, yeah. Do you know how many copies of his book, Gordon, Lord Byron, sold George Gordon uh, in 18... 18- 10 or whatever it was, like tens of thousands of copies of his poetry book when it came out. There weren't even that many people living in London at the time. Mm. Imagine if you could sell that many. No one, you wouldn't sell that many Imagine poetry books. Imagine you sold books. that many of Steve Smith's men. Oh, but, You'd be a gazillionaire. But for a poetry book, for poetry, you sell, you sell 300 copies of a poetry book maybe if you're lucky. I've written one, I know. But, you know, no, no one buys them. But Jesus, he sold something like 26,000 copies in a week. Incredible, incredible stuff. Um, nonetheless, Byron Cooper Fogarty has put in a 216. We've had a few 216s, and I keep saying it's Clary Grimmett's uh, tally of We've been insisting. And it keeps being wrong. So I'd like to think that if Byron's been listening, he said someone needs to take pity on Jeff yeah. and make it Clary Grimmett. So I'm going to say it's Clary Grimmett. Thank you, Byron. Thank you, Byron. What's next? <laughs> uh, Thomas Bailey has put in a number which uh, has a, bears a, a strong relation to you and I in terms of Games we've covered, Adam. 145. 145 from Thomas Bailey. There are a couple of 145s, in fact, that we have seen in the flesh in the last few years. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the clues that I played with a Tom Bailey. I played with a Tom Bailey, so it could be related to Tom. I'm not going to... I used to call him the dingo for reasons that I won't... I won't go into. Uh, he one four five wouldn't be Dean Jones at the Gabba from him. It would be an English related thing. Ooh. It would be a Yorkshire related thing specifically. Do you think so? Okay. Yeah, but if it's not, if it's not the same Tom Bailey, if it's not Dingo, no. then it's probably, it's probably Dino not. at the Gabba. It's probably not because no. See, I reckon it's something else. I think it's something. Oh. I think it's something we saw within the last three years. Oh right, okay. And uh, Usman. Uh, th- that's one of them. There are two possible Usman options. At Whirling, no. Adelaide. Usman at Adelaide is yeah. one. He's his best hundred until Dubai yeah. um, against South Africa in the day night test. But there was also one not long before that, probably earlier that same year, and it was very fast. Um, oh, Brendan McCullum. Brendan McCullum's The record 145 that we saw, uh, which I always remember for getting the tap on the shoulder on commentary. It's always kind of a touch and go when it's right on the edge of the minute that you're calling. So say you're about to come off commentary at 139, or one, sorry, at 140, and it's 139. You've got to make a bit of a judgment. Will, will the new over start in time for the next person. And on that occasion, I got the tap on the shoulder at 139 and quite forcefully told to get off because Brendan McCullum was on 82 and it was his, um, the, my and, co-caller. going to take three seconds to get Well, there. the point was my co-caller happened to also be his manager. Right. And 
and he was right to do so because in the next to- he could have just said well one more over he's not going to get 18 in the over he got 18 in five balls so he was yeah. right to bring me off <laughs> at that point but I, was, I guess I was five balls away from calling the fastest 100 of all time not to be I reckon you called about 56 runs in the previous three overs I definitely so. in the previous 20 minutes <laughs> took him past 50 and you know uh, from lunch to the first 20 minutes after lunch he, he moved from yeah about 30 to 82 it, so it is also a Dino 100 as well it's also it could could have been um, the score that the, sorry that was in a one day of the Dino yes it was 145 um, Andy Belburney made 145 oh, earlier yeah. this year the, the great Irishman Balbo. Sophie Devine made uh, 145 against South Africa in 2013 in, in Cuttack I like both of those people Sophie and Andy they're, they're, they're but if, if it's either of those two, I'm thrilled. Will Sanford has sent in a very final word number of $2.01, $2.01. Former guest, friend of the show, Jason Gillespie. Lovely. Thank you for your contribution. Can't, couldn't be anyone else. Won't be anyone else. Is that for sure? Uh, AJ, thank you, Will Sanford. AJ has sent in 232 and there are a few options here and they're all good. This 232 well, is, is a very okay. auspicious so number. It is. So 232, me. Stan McCabe's the logical, That's it. Uh, the logical and say, overwhelming. And sometimes I know. I don't need to prep you with anything. I know you're just going to get it. Yeah. That, no, so, so, so Stan McCabe's, it's, it's almost got to be, if you want to read about that innings, Google Christian Ryan and, uh, and read what he had to say about the 232. Um, Nothing well, else are, is leaping out at me. There are, there are six in total, um, and it's a pretty prestigious company, but the Stan McCabe one, I'm pretty sure that's what it would be because yeah. it's such a famous innings. It but um, the bloke who reckoned it was the best innings he ever saw also made 232. Who else made 232 who would have played in the same game that Stan McCabe made? I mean, I guess Bradman possibly? Yeah, Bradman. Oh, right, okay. Bradman right, which often, Bradman 100 is it? Bradman often talked up that McCabe innings as the best he'd seen, the best right. batting he'd seen. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, okay interesting. Which 232 from Bradman? Uh, at the Oval in 1930 against England. Ah, uh, right, to end the series. Okay, that's 232. nice. 232. Viv like Richards that. made a 232 against England at Trent Bridge. Yep. Um, Andy Flower did it in India in that amazing series yes. where he made oh, about... 400 runs in four innings. We were out once and average. And he went to yeah. the, And I think that was the innings where he went to the number one in the in the, uh, in the batting rankings. Uh, that, I think that was it, the 2-3-2 two, two which took him there. Kumar Sangakara made it against South Africa in Colombo in 4 And Graham Smith made one against Bangladesh. So those are the, the six Good stuff. players Good who've number. made 2 Strong number. Very strong number. So Thank you. Who was the... AJ, was it? AJ. Thank you, AJ. Don't know anything about AJ except he's got two initials. He or she has two initials yep. and, and is sparing, won't use anything else. It could be a former boss of mine who went by the name of AJ. We'll see. This one, I like it when I see ones that I know immediately and don't have to look up. Tim Harding, generous pledge as well. Thank you very much, Tim Harding, for going all the way out to nine fifty two, nine dollars fifty two. But uh, I know what nine fifty two is, uh, even if you Hadley? don't. No. Hadley against Australia? No. no. It must be nine fifty four. Uh nine fifty two might be the highest score made by was it Sri Lanka against no it wasn't it was England against Australia at um, uh, at the Oval I feel like that's right England versus Australia at the Oval uh, in the final Ashes test is it, is it that? No, it's it's no, um, it's Christ. Sri Lanka against India in 1997. They made 9.52 for six declared. What am I, what's the Hutton? I think Hutton's... They're, that's 9.14 or nine something fourteen, like that. Okay. It's, it's a bit less. It's 900 and something, or 9.03. So it's not, it's 9.52 the record, is 9. it? 9.52 is the highest ever mm. score in a test innings. Who made runs in that game? Uh, Jaya Surya made his triple in that oh. game. Uh, Roshan Mahanama made a double. Aravinda De Silva made a single hundred. 
And look, okay, the nine nine fifty two. It could be Hadley. It could be nine for fifty two. Oh, was it? Did he say nine fifty two? That is what it. That that is an option. But oh, I, that's really. I, I like that. I'm, I'm glad that was in my head. Um, but I'm just determined that it's going. It's be, because I thought of this the other one first. I'm determined that that's going to be. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm really thrilled that in my head I've got somewhere stuck away that he took nine for fifty two. That's um, good stuff. This one's right in your wheelhouse from Luke Reynolds. Okay. So thanks to Tim Harding for the, thanks Tim the Hadley slash. That's very generous as well, Tim. That's very very kind of you. Thank you so much. Luke Reynolds has sent in three. 324 and you know you've probably um, got a tattoo of it 324 might very well be mark wall's cap number close if it's not mark wall's cap number and it's close to mark wall's cap number i'm going to be in the same i got it might be it might be it might be dean jones's cap it's well it was uh, yeah two of my first three cats were called dino so that's probably fair enough the first was dipper and then there was Dino, and then there was Dino too. All three f- met the same fate uh, on the roads of southeast Melbourne. Good lord! And, and I think we should wrap it up after one more because we've had a long nerd pledge spell. <laughs> but this one's coming in from Paul Frame, and it's two oh seven. So thanks to Luke Reynolds for the last one, Paul Frame, with this one two oh seven. I mean, a lot of guys have, a lot of and women for that matter have made it just over two hundred. It's not like sort of a number that. Immediately latches I don't know out if they make me. it to two oh seven. There's a lot of two oh threes, two threes, fours. Right. I'm not right. sure if there are a lot of sevens. Um, oh, you've got an innings in mind, don't you? I do. Okay, give me the one you've got. Well, it, it um, happened around about the same time as the Dean Headley incident, but uh, somewhere else. Um, <laughs> the same. So ninety eight, ninety nine is the Dean Headley incident. Uh, around about. Um, in that ballpark. Uh, oh, yes, 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 okay. Um, uh, Edgevaster 97, Asrosane. There you go. There we go. There we go. Um, I was thinking about that test the other day. Of course um, you were. Only because <laughs> you, you do for about seven <laughs> minutes every morning just after you wake up. Only because it was about the free-to-air debate we're having over here at the moment. Uh, that was a test match where the first session of the Ashes wasn't shown on the Nine Network, which had the rights at the time, because they elected instead, because it was a Thursday night, to show the footy show in both markets in both the, the both sides of the brassy <laughs> line the footy show um in in the original footy show the footy show footy show and then the the rugby or rugby league whatever whatever they call it footy show um north of the brassy line um which meant that they were giving progress scores from edge best and as wickets tumbled um so yes we do have a proud history of cricket being on free-to-air television in australia but not all not all the time there were tweaks made at different intervals and and i remember that distinctly from 97. Um, also, of course, the test match where Mark Taylor saved his career, and I think that came up on the show recently, didn't it? <laughs> the wonderful second innings 100 Mark Taylor made to ensure that he would continue as captain of the side. I interviewed Mark about this, I don't know, a few years ago now, about this, <laughs> about this innings, and um, he said he, was, he would have quit as captain um, had he not made runs in that second innings. He would have been sacked or to quit. So, you know, anyway, that was the same game that Nasser Hussain made his double ton, double ton and uh, where England went one up in a series they, they ultimately lost. There we go. And, and this is why when we first started doing this segment, I was like, will this be interesting enough to keep anyone's attention for more than a little while? But I can always trust you to have an educational tangent that will bring in all kinds of <laughs> uh, historical details. So, or at uh, least just stuff that's stuck in my brain. I think it's working. Um, you know, but let us know. If you, think it's, if you think it's dull or going on too long, let us know. If you think it's the best thing you've ever heard, let us know as well. You can always get into touch with us at finalwordcricket at gmail.com. You can also go to the website now, finalwordcricket.com. You can go there and you find can. contacts. And that's, that's, that's a good place to start segueing into our thank yous. As usual, thanks to everybody who's been involved in Patreon. That's just where... 
blown away. We are truly blown away. We've passed 201 now, which means that we will pull together the... Uh, the, the bloopers reel. bloopers reel. It won't happen anytime soon because we're working 18 hours a day, but it will happen at some point. Um, thank you to... I would say it won't happen overnight, but it will almost certainly at some point happen overnight because I'll have to sit up all night. That's true. It. But uh, it'll be worth it. We, yeah. we love having everybody's support. It's a wonderful thing. Absolutely, we do indeed. Uh, thanks to Kookaburra for their ongoing support. Thanks to A.V. Jennings, who through the World Cup have, have been outstanding in making this podcast tick over in the weekly edition form. Uh, thanks to Jay Mueller and Bad Producer Productions. I see they've hit some more milestones during the week in terms of the amount of downloads they've had since they started their, their podcast production company four years ago. Go and reach out on their website uh, and see any number of excellent podcasts that they produce uh, and we're so thrilled to be part of their family of, uh, of casts. And if you want to get involved in Nerd Pledge, you can go to patron.com slash the final word. Patron is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N for reasons best known to those who started the company. <laughs> That's right. Oh, and I should also add that the iTunes ratings and, and reviews and so forth, uh, I sometimes forget to say that, but they make a pretty big difference and they've been very generous on the whole. There's I a feel like of we're setting who've... people homework at the end of the yeah, show. No, we're right. like, here are nine tasks yeah. you have to go and we, you, we, you can <laughs> Actually, choose any one or yeah, any one, one or any them, group. Yeah, one of them would be great. That we, we received typically quite kind iTunes reviews. One wasn't so kind recently, <laughs> but you know that, that's what happened. Been a handful, but I'm, I'm willing to. Exp- I was going to say I'm willing to expose myself. That sounds wrong. I'm no. willing to expose myself to the uh, critique of the, of the public, <laughs> and so are you. We, we on our 93 one last year that I do is Shannon Gill and Dan Bredig, also part of the Bad Producer family. We got it got described as a lefty flogathon. I kind of I kind of lament that we've never been called a lefty flogathon. Or, if this if isn't only. that, then what is this? What, what is our purpose? What is our what is our raison d'etre, if you will? <laughs> which further which further underpins the point? That, you could was, argue that was the point because there's no English uh, phrase for reason for being. No. You have to say it in French. No, it just has right. a certain je ne sais quoi. Time for us to wind this up with those thank you said. And uh, to those who, the 10 people who um, spoke to us for the middle section of the show there, that was great. Thanks for being part of the World Cup Daily throughout too. Um, we're just um, we're just wonderfully, uh, we're just, um, it's, it's, it's a quote, former West Ham player, Carlton Cole, we are overchuffed at the response we've received to the World Cup Daily. And the great news is, is that we're bringing it back for the Ashes. So um, keep an eye on your feeds because in addition to the weekly show, which will continue interview-based most of the time, the World Cup Daily is going to become the Ashes Daily as of Taunton next yep. week when we're down there for the women's test. It won't be manically every day between games as it has been in the World Cup, but it will be uh, playing days and, and probably the day before the test. So keep an ear out there and, and then there'll be you'll be able to tell the weekly show because it's got a number in front of a new feed that indicates where it sits in season six. The dailies will be listed as dailies you'll work it out you'll work smart it out. people and if you have any suggestions people you really want us to interview drop us an email and uh, let us know or a tweet because yes. we're we're always adding to the um, desired interviewee list yes we're working on mick jagger not yet but we will work on mick jagger at some point through the summer adam collins and jeff lemon this has been the final word thanks to av jennings we'll talk to you all in various forms very soon i'm sure you this, so you know what i meant here. i had to go